Well, we're in 1 Timothy, we're in chapter 6, we're closing with verses 20 and 21. And what we're going to do as we look at this particular portion of Scripture is I'm going to give you a prolonged introduction, developing it along the way as we come to the conclusion in verses 20 and 21. And so let's begin just by reading those two verses. I'll give you the introduction and we'll move into our study. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 20 and 21. What we're looking at is Paul's last word to Timothy in this epistle. And that last word is guard the gospel. 1 Timothy 6.20, O Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust, avoiding the profane and vain or idle babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Grace be with you. Amen. So Paul is concluding his letter to a young man by the name of Timothy. Timothy, as we know by studying 1 Timothy, was a pastor of a church, a mighty church in a mighty city. He was a pastor of a church in the ancient city of Ephesus. And as a young pastor, Timothy had been encountering several great challenges. Paul was his true father in the faith. Paul had brought Timothy to a relationship with Jesus Christ, and therefore would speak of him as being his true or beloved son in the faith. And because he was a special or a true son to him, there was a great amount of love that Paul had for this young man named Timothy. As a young pastor, he naturally needed to learn, and he needed to learn from an experienced minister. And so with that in mind, Paul wrote this letter to help him perform the work of ministry. Throughout the letter, Paul has instructed him concerning a variety of things, and these things all related to what we today would refer to as church life. He especially was writing to instruct Timothy concerning his role, his role as a pastor. He had said in 1 Timothy 3.15, I write so that you may know how you ought to conduct yourself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God. So as we've been studying this letter, we've seen that Paul has been writing concerning a variety of things. We see how Paul had given some time to give his own testimony. In, in chapter 1, we saw in verses 12 through 15, how Paul spoke concerning the fact that not only was he a dispenser of the grace of God, but he was one who received the grace of God, and he gave his testimony. Because he wanted to remind us, as well as Timothy, he wanted to remind those who would read this letter or hear it read, he wanted to remind them that grace isn't something that you talk about something, it is something that you've experienced in a personal level. And he was reminding Timothy as a young pastor that he was received, and Timothy was receiving from a man who knew the riches of the grace of God. In 1 Timothy, we saw him speak concerning his own testimony when Paul wrote in verses 12 through 15, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has enabled me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And so Paul would say, 
I understand grace, I've received grace, and we need to give grace. As we've been looking at the letter, we saw how that the grace of God that was so full in the life of Paul even caused him while he was writing under the inspiration of the Spirit to write songs of praise even in the midst of the letter. So he spontaneously praised God in what we refer to as two doxologies, one in chapter 1, verse 16, and the other in chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. We saw how Paul established ministry roles in the church in chapters 2 and 3. We saw how Paul gave his own confession of faith found in chapter 3, verse 16. We saw that Paul counseled Timothy to be spiritually disciplined in chapter 4, verse 7. That would make him an example to the believers because that's what he said you're to do. You're not to just simply speak concerning how one lives. He said you need to live as an example so that you're going to win the credibility of ministry and the respect of those that you serve. So be an example to the believer in word and conduct, in love and spirit, in faith and all purity. And in doing so, you'll be an example to that church. Paul said to him, do not neglect your spiritual gifts. You need to live the messages that you give. Minister to the older members. Care for the younger ones. Care for the widows. Make sure that ministers are properly compensated. He said, Timothy, do not show favoritism when it comes to ordaining ministers. And make sure that you teach all the members to treat one another fairly and do so with respect. Those who desire to be wealthy were warned against the pitfalls of wealth and those who are already rich were to be humble and to remain faithful to God. So we've seen all of those things as we've gone through 1 Timothy. And now we come to Paul's last words. So the question is, how does Paul close this letter? Seeing that this is the last thing that he's going to emphasize in this letter. So he actually begins to conclude with a command. Notice what he says in verse 20 when he says, Oh, Timothy. He gives a command. He says, guard what was committed to your trust. Guard. The word guard means to watch over or preserve, protect, guard it, value it, cherish it. Cherish the gospel so much that you'll do all that you need to do, anything that you have to do to protect it. Protect it. Why? Because, Timothy, you need to value it. When my daughter Corinne was a few months old, my wife Marie and I went to a restaurant that we would go to on occasion in Uptown Whittier. And we'd gone enough times for the owner of the restaurant to get to know us, not as friends or even speaking to us, but when we would walk in, he'd nod at us, we'd nod at him, and we'd go to the table and we'd eat and all of that. We did that enough for him to begin to, I believe, recognize us. Well, Marie had given birth to Corinne, and Corinne was a few months old. And so we went into the restaurant, and as we were there, I was holding my, my baby. I would, would carry her and hold her, try and give her away. Uh, but no, I would, nobody wanted her. No, I would carry her and very protective, very protective father. And so as I walked in, I still remember coming in with my baby, and we're being seated when the owner of the restaurant walks up to me, and again, he'd seen us before, he knew who we were by face, 
and he walks up and takes my baby from my arms. He takes Corinne from me. And when he did that, and he just began to walk away, I was on his tail. I was, I was following him. I followed him. He went all over the restaurant, and I went all over right next to him. And I would stand when he would stop, and he'd talk to her, and I'd just stand there quietly. Then he would walk, and I'd, I was behind him, and everywhere he went till he finally saw, I'm not comfortable with you holding my kid, unless you pay her college. No, I'm not. <laughs> I'm real protective like that. I really am. That's mine. That's my baby. I don't really know you. Who are you with my kid? I'm just that way. And the Lord, as I was preparing this study, reminded me, because I was thinking about this, protecting the gospel. And that's kind of how this came about. I began to think about it. I understand protecting what is valuable. I protect my wife. I protect my kids. I protect my grandchildren. I protect my church. I have a protective urgency in me. You understand it too. And what he is saying is, protect the gospel, Timothy. Guard that gospel. Defend that gospel. Hold fast to that gospel. He says, I'm commanding you to do this. Guard the gospel. Defend it. Protect it. Hold fast to it. Observe it because it is the very word of truth. Commit yourself to guarding the gospel, Timothy. When we've gone through 1 Timothy various times, Paul has encouraged him to safeguard the gospel. Remember in chapter 1, verse 3, how he ordered him to charge some that they teach no other gospel? In chapter 4, verses 1 through 7, he warned Timothy concerning deceptive spirits that instigated false teaching. In chapter 4, verse 16, he encouraged him to remain faithful to God's word because God's word means salvation. In chapter 6, verses 12 through 14, he exhorted him to fight the good fight of faith for men's souls. And again, I mentioned that in chapter 3, verse 15, Paul revealed that the church was the pillar and the ground of the truth. Now, when Paul said that the church of the living God is the pillar and ground of the truth. Pillar and ground would connect with the way that the Ephesians thought because Ephesus had the temple of Diana. And the temple of Diana was the center of the life of the Ephesians. And so when he would speak of pillar and ground, he was using terms they would be familiar with because the temple had 127 marble pillars. It was a magnificent structure, 127 marble pillars studded with gold and jewels. And they knew that, that, that those uh, pillars were, were there to support the roof. And so they understood construction in that way. When he spoke of the ground, the pillar and ground, ground speaks of the foundation. The foundation, the ground, supports the pillars as well as the roof. And so the point he had made when he said that the church is the pillar and ground of the truth, well, the point he's making is one by contrast because they understood that the temple that was there was actually dedicated to idolatry and paganism. So as beautiful as the temple was, it's just an example of false religion because it's a belief system that's built on a faulty foundation. It's built on idolatry. But in contrast, Paul would be saying, the church is built on Jesus Christ who is the sure foundation. In 1 Corinthians 3.11, remember how he said to the church in Corinth, no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, 
Jesus Christ. And so the church is to be the uh, testimony of the truth of God. You see, here's something for you to remember. In Scripture, truth is divine revelation. When you speak concerning truth, it is divine revelation. And it is especially contained in the gospel. And it's the church's responsibility to remain immovably faithful to the message of God. Because the church is the foundation and pillar that supports God's truth. The church, in other words, has the divine responsibility of upholding the truth of God's word. The church does not invent truth, nor does the church add to it. And the church does not take away from it. The church supports it. That's why it's important for us to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's why. Because it's the truth that sets you free. And Timothy is the pastor. Paul is closing with an exhortation to his dear son in the faith. And that's why he says, guard which was that which was committed to your trust. Protect it. Observe it. Defend it. Why? Because it's God's truth, and you need to remember that. In Psalm 119, 160, the entirety of your word is truth. John 17, verse 17, sanctify them by your truth. Jesus said, your word is truth. Now, because it's been delivered to us, we remain faithful to its message. It is something to safeguard. It's to be communicated unmodified. We're not to alter the message to suit the hearer. We are to accurately present it. Listen, in these days today, especially, every pastor knows that there are very sensitive hearers. Every pastor knows that. Every pastor knows that there are things that you may say that can offend people. We all know that. We all know that if you actually rightly divide the word of truth, that people have a tendency of responding in a negative way. Many do, not all, many do, because they feel that the person speaking is being judgmental and harsh and unloving. And so pastors become shy to speak the truth because it's very few things that can be so discouraging as when someone just decides to stand up and just saunter out, not giving you opportunity to finish with what you're saying, not giving you opportunity to conclude the reason why this is being said. It can be very discouraging when that happens because people are hypersensitive. If they're not entertained within the first five to seven minutes of a message, they generally leave. That's what happens. And yet, it's the minister's responsibility to correctly divide and present what is true and not to alter it. According to Deuteronomy 12.32, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take away from it. In Proverbs 30, verse 6, do not add to his words, lest he rebuke you and you be found a liar. I have a very dear friend that many of you are aware of or know, uh, Raul Reese from Calvary Chapel, Golden Springs. And he's, I've known Raul since I was, I met him when I was around 27 years old, so I've known him for 40 years. I've known Raul for a long time, known his ministry for a long time. 
He's a very good friend of mine. We're very, very good friends and have been for many years. And there have been times when Rawl has stood before going out to teach, shaking his head. God, I don't want to say this. Even with tears, I don't want to say this. I don't want to say this. Because when you rightly divide, it's a sword. And sometimes it slices. And sometimes people get hurt. But they don't understand that the slicing is to remove what is killing you. And the word of God does that. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. It's sharper than a surgeon's scalpel. And so when the word is rightly divided and is properly applied and people receive it by faith, their lives change and are blessed. Nobody likes to see pain in somebody else. Most people don't. Shepherds don't. But we also know that when the pain concludes, healing is there. And sometimes things in my life are so serious that the Lord does a surgery on me. So a pastor has the responsibility of speaking the truth in love because the truth sets captives free and truth is what God has called us to give. But you see, when you read your Bible, you'll see false teachers are guilty of changing the words of, the, of, of God's message in order to entice hearers. Paul spoke about that in 2 Corinthians 2.17. Paul said, unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity, like men sent from God. You see, the gospel is a message of eternal life. Therefore, Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. In Romans 10, 9 and 10, Paul said, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you confess and are saved. Jesus in John 12, 48 said, There is a judge for the one who rejects me and does not accept my words. That very word which I spoke will condemn him at the last day. And so the church has the job of caring for God's word. It is our most precious possession. Some of you are aware of this. Perhaps others may not be. There's a reason why a pulpit is in the center of a stage. There's a reason why. Some people think, oh, yeah, it's better theatrically. No, that's not why. The reason that we have a pulpit in the center is because the word of God is the center. That's why pulpits are in the center of a platform because the minister is taking God's holy word, the Bible, and is placing it in the center of the life of the church. That's how that works. That's why we have a pulpit here. We could have it anywhere. There are churches that have them off to the side. They have some that have it on left side, right side, whatever. Ours is in the center. Why? Because you need to remember, even visually when you walk in, and you, you, as I'm saying this, it's connecting with some of you. The word of God is the center. We don't put the band in the middle. Why? Because music is praise to God, but it's supposed to be something that is a response to it, the truth of God. We worship him in spirit and truth. And so the word of God has to be the center of everything. And we get that out of the word of God. And so we're to guard that which God has given to us. In 2 Timothy 1.13, 
Paul said, hold fast the pattern of sound words which you have heard from me in faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. So it's a message of truth that God has commissioned the church to proclaim because it's the truth that sets people free. And we communicate it to any and all who would hear. That's what Jesus taught us to do. When you look in Matthew in 28, chapter 28, verses 19 and 20, he commissioned the church to do that. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And so that's what Paul is closing his letter with. Timothy, guard what was committed to your trust. The church has the challenge of receiving and delivering God's word to future saints. Today it is increasingly difficult because cynicism permeates our culture. There are those who say today truth doesn't exist. And even if it did, it cannot be absolutely known. I was in an um, airport a while back now, and as I was seated there on my way um, home, coming back from ministry, as I was seated in the airport, it, it was sparse. There were just a few people around me, and I saw somebody coming, and they were coming, speaking to different passengers. And, and I was seated there, and I knew they're going to come and talk to me in a minute. I always enjoy those conversations, so I'm looking forward to it. Because I'm wondering, what are you up to, and what are you talking to people about? Because they were going one-to-one, -one, talking, talk, and I'm just watching them as they're coming towards me. And they had a book. They had a book. So I thought, oh, they're talking to him about a book. That ought to be interesting, you know? And so they finally walk up to me, and, 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 and it was a fella, and, he, and the guy says to me, would you, I would like to give you a book that has the words of life, he says to me. It's the Bhagavad Gita, the Hindu, quote-unquote, scripture. And I, have, I carry a pocket Bible and call it my switchblade. And so I pulled out my pocket Bible and I, and I showed it to him and I said, I already have the words of eternal life found in God's word called the scriptures. He says, oh, and I'll never forget our conversation. He goes, no, God is unknowable. And that's, I said, you're right. That's why he took upon himself human form, dwelt amongst men, and we were able to behold his glory, the glory of the only begotten Son of God, full of grace and truth. That's why God became flesh for us, that we might know Jesus Christ, who died on a cross to set me free. I already have life, because I have it in him. And he walked away. They always do, but I want to chase them going in. <laughs> no. Where are you going, man? Come on back. I, that, that's just, I haven't even received the offering. Come on, man. But you know what I'm saying? I mean, it's the truth. It's the truth of Jesus Christ. Never back down. Never say it's not true. It is the truth, and it sets you free. You need to understand that today. Remember that. It's the commission of the church. But they'll say, oh, it can't be absolutely known. Uh, others will say, well, truth exists, uh, but it's not divinely revealed. Uh, truth is what you would call natural or general. Well, as Christians, we know that truth is revealed. 
because by human nature, we do not know truth because we corrupt truth. So God reveals truth to us through the scriptures, and he has revealed his truth to us and entrusted us with it. He gave us his word. We are entrusted with it, and we act on it. We trust that God has given us truth. We embrace it for what it is. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't have questions. Of course we do. When I got saved, I didn't take my brain out of my head and put it on a shelf and just kind of walk around, just kind of... I don't know if you ever watched Disney cartoons, but one of my favorite characters is Goofy. For some reason, I've always associated with him, but you go, dop, 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 dop. well, God didn't call us to walk around like that, right? Dop, 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 dop. No, I didn't take my brain and put it on a shelf. I have questions. I've had questions since I got saved. I have questions to this day, but I'm not alone. I read my Bible and I see that many of the saints had questions and they asked their questions of the Lord. Habakkuk chapter one, verse two, how long Lord must I call for help, but you do not listen or cry out to you violence, but you do not save. Psalm 10 verse one, oh Lord, why do you stand so far away? Why do you hide? When I'm in trouble, Psalm 13, 2, how long must I wrestle with my thoughts and every day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Job 13, 24, why do you hide your face and consider me your enemy? Jeremiah 12, 1, you are always righteous, O Lord, when I bring a case before you. Yet I would speak with you about your justice. Why? Does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all the faithless live at ease? Oh, Lord, why does Pastor David have dark hair and a white beard? I mean, we all have questions. <laughs> we all have questions. No, I don't diet. And that's not an indication necessarily of unbelief in the sense of having no trust in God. It simply reveals that we're human beings in need of growth. It is often a revelation of a faith that is being developed and refined because we're asking the question, expecting the answer. Look in your Bible, Genesis 18, you look and you see there's a conversation that God has with a man named Abraham. And God is saying to Abram that he is coming to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Abraham has relatives there. Lot is there, his wife. Yes, Lot had sons-in-law and daughters. And he had two unmarried daughters. There were at least eight members of Abram's family there in Sodom. And God is coming and he's saying to Abraham, Abraham, I'm going to destroy those cities, Sodom, Gomorrah, and the small cities around. And as he's listening to the Lord say he's going to destroy, we have that very famous dialogue between God and Abraham. 
Shall not the judge of the whole earth do that which is right? What if there are 50 righteous people in the city? Will you spare the city for the sake of 50? Yes, I will. For the sake of 50, I will spare the city. Hmm. Well, seeing then I've begun this conversation, let's continue it a moment. Seeing that there are possibly 45, would you spare the city for 45? For the sake of 45, I will spare it. Well, I might as well continue. Seeing that we have this conversation, what if there are 40? Will you spare the city for 40? If there are 40 righteous in the city, yes, I will spare it. Well, let's keep going then. If there are 30 in the city, will you spare it for the sake of 30? For the sake of 30, I will spare the city. Okay, well, how about 20? Isn't it interesting? 50, 45, 30, 20. How about the sake of 20? Yes, I will spare it for the sake of 20. Well, here we go. One last. How about the sake of 10? Would you spare it for the sake of 10? Now, why 10? Surely his family would be spared. And he says, yes, I will. For the sake of 10, I will spare the city. Did God grow in the sight of Abraham? Or did Abraham grow in his understanding of the God who saves? Through questions, you learn the character of God. And when you're reading the word and you read and puzzle and question and pray and say, God, God has a way of developing you. So you see, my natural way and my normal solutions, God had a different way that he was going to work in this. And you learn something of the character of God. So listen, if you puzzle and if you are reading the word and you say, I don't get this, you're just joining the crowd of the saints who've gone before you, who've asked their questions. Why does it seem that the, that the wicked prosper and those who do their best end up losing their children at an early age? Why, Lord? Why am I a, a, a man who does my best? Why did I lose everything that I have? Job could ask. Why, Lord? It's, it's part of growing up, as long as you're willing to receive the answers. So there's nothing wrong with asking questions. God was open to them, and he gave to him answers, and that's how Abraham learned that the judge of all the earth would do what was right. God's truth is what the believer entrusts themselves to, and God's truth is what we try to learn to act upon. One of my favorite writers is a man by the name of A.W. Tozer. And A.W. Tozer said, our Lord made it very plain that spiritual truth cannot be understood until the heart has made a full commitment to it. Jesus said, if anyone chooses to do God's will, he will find out whether my teaching comes from God or whether I speak on my own. The willing and the doing, or at least the willingness to do, come before the knowing. Truth is a strict master and demands obedience before it will unveil its riches to the seeking soul. And there's truth to that. You see, we're not to take his word lightly. 
And God does bless us as we trust him. In the book of Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 2, to this one I will look to him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. So as Paul was writing as the aged apostle, and he had opened up his letter by speaking to Timothy as his beloved son, his true son in the faith, and as he was tenderly writing to him, he was writing as a father would to a son. And he's sharing with him the things that he needs to know. He is now concluding, and he's coming to that, that point where he wants to, to settle something in his heart. And somebody said, he, he writes now no longer addressing church or pastor, but his own favorite friend and pupil. The loved heir of his God-inspired traditions and teachings, but so faithfully represented the teachings of Jesus. Oh, Timothy, keep the sacred trust committed to your charge. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. Timothy, observe, preserve, maintain, and protect the gospel. Hold fast to the message of Jesus. Do not allow it to be polluted. There are false teachers in your midst, Timothy. Hold tightly. Preserve the word of God and its truths. So Paul is passionately commanding Timothy to be faithful to the word of God. In 2 Timothy, in chapter 4, verse 2, he'll say to him, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. So Timothy, guard that which was committed to your trust. You've been given the most important message that's ever been handed to man. You've been entrusted with a message of the gospel. Do not take it lightly. In 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 4 and 5, Paul said, but as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, even so we speak, not as pleasing men, but God who tests our hearts. For neither at this time did we use flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak for covetousness. God is witness. He went on in 1 Thessalonians 2 at verse 13 to say, for this reason we also thank God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. Somebody said, what is meant by the command, keep the trust? Timothy must guard the healthy teaching of his master and keep it safe from robbers and foes. What is meant by the trust? It is something entrusted to you to keep, not a possession that you have discovered for yourself. It is something you have received from another. It is not something that you have thought out for yourself. Of this trust, remember that you are nothing but the guardian. What then is the meaning of keep the trust? It is surely nothing else than the command to guard the treasure of the faith. The faith of the gospel is gold that you have received. Make sure that you hand gold to others. He says, avoiding profane and vain babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. If you're going to succeed, these things must be avoided. When he speaks about avoiding, the word avoid means to turn away from something, to resist associating with something. You're to avoid certain things, Timothy. Avoid profane and vain babblings and contradictions of so-called knowledge. When he says avoid profane, the word profane speaks of something unholy, something ungodly or worldly. Vain babblings are empty arguments 
vain chatter that leads to ungodliness. Contradictions is a word that was used to describe counter-propositions in a debate. He's referring to pseudo-intellectual arguments there. The word knowledge is gnosis. It's a reference to a philosophy that developed opposing the gospel. This can be a reference to anything that runs contrary to the message of grace. You need to avoid this. Why? Because the effect will be destructive. Some people don't understand that bad teaching produces bad lives. And not only does it produce a bad life in that person practicing it, but bad teaching when acted upon infects other people. In 2 Timothy 2, 16 and 17, it says, shun profane and vain babblings for they will increase to more ungodliness. Their message will spread like cancer. And so you stay away from bad doctrine. He says in verse 21, by professing it, some have strayed concerning the faith. Now, when he's speaking of professing this, some have strayed, the word strayed means to deviate. The faith is a term that is used not of the saving faith, but the message of the gospel. They have strayed from the entire message of the gospel. They've gotten away from what God's word actually says. You see the word, the faith used to describe the message of the gospel in various places. In Acts chapter 6, verse 7, the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. 1 Corinthians 16, 13 says, watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong. Philippians 1:27 says, only let your conduct be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of your affairs, that you stand fast in one spirit, with one mind striving together for the faith of the gospel. So the fruit of bad doctrine is ungodly lives because bad doctrine eliminates a cardinal thing that every believer is to have. Bad doctrine eliminates the fear of God. Bad doctrine does. The Bible tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all filthiness of the flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Bad doctrine undermines the fear of God, which is the beginning of knowledge and wisdom. The unbeliever has no fear of God in them, Romans chapter 3 tells us. There was a question posted on Facebook Actually, it was a statement that was made that people began to respond to. You know, Facebook can be a, an interesting place where people begin to share ideas and, and give their thoughts and all. And somebody had asked, what is it that causes some who at one time were professing pastors to step away and to fall prey to the various things that occur? But there, there are people who say, well, that guy used to open the word of God and he, he used to have a good-sized church and he used to have a lot of respect and he ended up doing the things that he did. And all of us have read the newspaper accounts of various well-known uh, individuals who represented the kingdom of God who have, have stumbled into sin, entered into sin, and, and the, the gospel of grace has come under a bad repute because of that. And, and there are people who will ask about that. How did that happen? And so a lot of people are posting why they think, you know, arrogance or pride or they, they were, you know, um, uh, they became too big too soon. And there's a lot of people have their ideas. The answer to that question is much more simple. Why did they enter into sin? They lost the fear of God. They lost the fear of God. It is a very, very 
very important thing to retain in your heart, the fear of God. I have a healthy fear of God, and I'm supposed to, because it's the fear of God that keeps me from evil. It's the fear of God that keeps me usable, and it's the one thing that I see in the church that has been lost by many. They don't have a healthy awareness of the awesome God that is revealed to us in Scripture. All you need to do is read concerning how Moses went on that mount to get the word of God. And there was thunder and there was so much, so much going on up there that when he came down, the people said, we don't want you go up there. They were trembling in fear at what they were seeing as Moses was meeting with the Lord. That's a great picture of the awesome majesty of the God that you and I serve. And a lot of people do not have a healthy sense the awareness of the presence of God in all things. And we actually can take him into the sinful situations we practice thinking he approves because he hasn't broken our legs yet or done something. So we think that because he hasn't done something, that he must approve of that. When in fact, he is long-suffering and patient and he keeps on giving us opportunity to repent because ultimately we are going to reap what we're sowing. And then what happens is people blame God and start saying, where is God? And God has been right there all along saying, do not do that. My word has given to you enough. You know you're not to do that. You're doing it anyway. You're upset. The young lady who approached me after a service, pray for me, pastor, I think I'm pregnant. She wasn't married. And I asked her, what do you want me to do? Pray that God removes the baby from your womb? What, what do you want me to do? You entered into sin. You're reaping what you've sown. And you, what do you, what? You think you're not going to have repercussions for that? Or the guy who was drunk on Christmas or New Year's and he got pulled over and comes, Pastor, can you pray for me? Of course. How can I pray for you? Well, pray that the judge will be lenient with me because I was drunk. Well, you know, I will pray that justice be served and mercy will, 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 will superintend. But you, you can't, surely you can't think that you're going to get away with sin simply because you call God your father. Where's the fear of God? Where's the fear of God? And that's the concern. And a lot, I'm telling you, you know this, a lot of quote-unquote believers have none at all and do not realize that it's the fear of God that marks them as a believer of God. It marks them. It's one of the identifiable traits of a genuine believer in Jesus Christ. Bad doctrine gives permission to continue living ungodly lives because it eliminates the fear of God and it, it veneers it with a pseudo-grace that is really recognized as permission to sin. That's the fruit of bad doctrine. What can we do? to maintain our walks with the Lord and remain strong. Let me give you a few things as we close. One, cultivate a love for the word of God. Cultivate that. Like it says in Psalm 119, verse 97, oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Second, devote yourself to reading and studying and growing to know God's word. Like Job said in chapter 23, verse 12, I have not departed from the command of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. Third, make a determination to obey what you read 
In John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. Fourth, be careful to remain loyal and faithful to God's word. And fifth, make sure that when you share it, that you don't alter it. Simply release it and watch what God can do. Read the Bible daily. Have devotions where you just spend a few minutes with God. You read a passage and you pray. You know, you could read the book of Proverbs 12 times in a year just by reading one chapter a day. 12 times in a year. And Proverbs tells us that that's where you get wisdom. So read the book of Proverbs. It'll take you 10 minutes to read a chapter and pray. Be committed. Get involved in Bible studies, small group studies. It's a good thing. Come to places, come to things here at the church you attend. Go to the studies there. If you can't be in a small group, get involved in an evening study and get in the Word of God. Because if you do so, your life is going to change. I'll close by reading something to you that I found. I, I forgot I had I, I forgot I had this, and, and, and again, I, I'm going to read this to you, and you, you, some of you may get mad at me, and if you do, please feel free to write. My name is David Bustamante, <laughs> and you can write me at David B at Calvary if you'd like. A while back now, I was given a study just like this, and I mentioned a TV preacher, and I mentioned the error that he had presented on his program. I mentioned it as an illustration, which at one time I was very more open to doing. I do it less now, but there were times, and, that, and this is one of those times, that I thought it would illustrate by giving an actual example. So people would say, oh, that's what he's talking about, and that's why I do that not to be a judge, quote, unquote, on somebody's motives. That was, that's not what, <laughs> what I do. What I do is I say, this is an example of what I'm trying to say. And so I made a comment about uh, a, a quote, unquote, teacher by the name of Creflo Dollar. And I got a letter, which uh, I told Rawl, you shouldn't write me. You can call me. <laughs> no, I, I, I got a letter. And this is, and I'm, uh, I'll share with you an excerpt from the letter, or actually her letter and my response to illustrate. And this was the letter to me. I found Pastor David Rosales' remarks against Dr. Creflo Dollar unfounded. I have watched Creflo Dollar for some time now and have never heard him refer to Jesus as anything else but the Son of God, God in the flesh, or the Word become flesh. The program Pastor Rosales was referring to was actually depicting the biblical account of how Jesus calmed the tempest on the seas and disciples fear the storm and was stressing our need for absolute trust in our Savior. Creflo Dollar was merely implying that since Jesus was born into this world in the form of a physical body as a man, he required, as all men do, sleep when exhausted from ministering to the people. I'm sure Pastor Rosales meant well, but it may be wise not to pass judgment on a man who has given to us some real foundational truths. Dr. Creflo's teachings surpass any I've known. So I wrote back, her name was Debbie. Dear Debbie, 
thank you for your recent response to a teaching I gave that included Creflo Dollar's error. While I appreciate your love for him and his ministry, my hope would be that you would have a solid knowledge of doctrine in that having a sure foundation in God's word will safeguard you from deception. Indeed, Creflo Dollar made the remarks I cited. Here is what he said in my correction of his error. On December 8, 2002, while on TBN, he said, Jesus didn't come as God, he came as a man, and he did not come perfect. How many of you know the Bible says God never sleeps nor slumbers? Psalm 121, verse 4. And yet, in the book of Mark, we see Jesus asleep in the back of the boat. This ain't no heresy. I'm not some false prophet. I'm just reading this thing to you out of the Bible. That's what he said. Now, Debbie, I cannot for the world understand why you do not see this for what it is. He said plainly, and I quote, Jesus didn't come as man, he came as a man. I'm sorry, Jesus didn't come as God, he came as a man, and he was not perfect. This is error, even heresy, and has nothing to do with him implying anything. He was specifically saying that Jesus did not come as God, and that he was not perfect. This is an actual quote, with no need of spinning to change its meaning. From the beginning of the age of the church, this has been recognized as heresy and error. Obviously, Jesus is God in the flesh as well as perfect. John 1.1, 1, 1, John 1.14, 1, John 8.46, 1 John 3.5. As the God-man, he needed to eat, drink, and sleep like other men, but was and is sinless and perfect, God in the flesh. Debbie, I stand by my quotation because it's accurate. Your response reveals what I was concerned about in my teaching, that people are being deceived. I thank you for saying I meant well, but the fact is I'm right in being concerned about people in the body of Christ falling for bad doctrine, and sadly, you are one who has. I have heard Mr. Dollar speak many times and have recognized his teachings as simply repetition of Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagin two other well-known teachers of biblical error. If this is passing judgment, then I am guilty with no sense of shame. I am simply teaching what the church has held fast to for the last 2,000 years, and would encourage you to go to a church that teaches the truth, not profane and vain babblings and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. You have been deceived, and the foundational truths you think have been given to you are in reality sinking sand. Please find a church that teaches the truth. Learn God's word from one who actually is a student of the Bible, not a repeater of other men's error. Check out my source and you will see, I quoted him accurately, David Rosales, Philippians 1.17. I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. And that's what we are called to do. That's what we're called to do. Present the gospel of Jesus Christ. As I close this book and I close this message, I close with another promise I've made many times over the years. Whenever you guys come to church here in this church, I wanna promise you one thing. I will always rightly divide the word of truth and present it to you as a man who loves God, fears God, and loves you. I will tell you the truth.
That's what we're called to do. That's what we do.